This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Dr. Lori Mintz, the author of Becoming Clitorate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It. In Becoming Clitorate, psychology professor and human sexuality expert Dr. Lori Mintz exposes the broader cultural problem that's perpetuating this gap and what we can do about it. Pulling together evidence from biology, sociology, linguistics, and sex therapy into one comprehensive, accessible, and prescriptive book, Becoming Clitorate features cultural and historical analysis of female orgasm, spoiler, the problem's been going on for ages, an anatomy section, it's all custom under the hood, proven techniques for clitorate sex, it starts with training the sex organ between your ears, a comprehensive final chapter for men, because you don't have to have a clitoris to be clitorate. By dispelling the lies, misunderstandings, and myths that have been holding us back, Becoming Clitorate tackles both personal and political problems and replaces them with updated outlooks and practical skills needed to change our collective perspective on sex. It's time to finally inform women and men on how to have satisfying experiences in bed that benefit both parties. The revolution is coming. And Becoming Clitorate offers a radical, simple solution to progress and pleasure for all. Dr. Lori Mintz is an award-winning college professor. She currently teaches psychology of human sexuality to hundreds of students a year at University of Florida and has had over 20 years of experience working with private clients on sexual issues. Dr. Mintz has received numerous professional awards and is a fellow of the American Psychological Association. She has published over 50 research studies, writes a Psychology Today blog, and has been quoted in many outlets, including Cosmopolitan, Women's Day, Prevention, Women's Health, Men's Health, CNN.com, Oprah.com, and The Huffington Post. To learn more about Dr. Mintz, please visit her website, drlorimintz.com. Here is the interview with Dr. Lori Mintz. In your own words, who is Dr. Lori Mintz? Well, thank you for asking that. I'm a psychologist, an author, and a professor. Um, 
my life's work is really dedicated to using psychology to help people live more joyful, sexually satisfied, and meaningful life, lives through the art and science of psychology. Um, I'm, I teach the psychology of human sexuality to about 150 students a year at the University of Florida, which I love to do. And I see clients in private practice, and I'm the author of two books, both written with the aim of empowering women sexually, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, and Becoming Cliterate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters, and How to Get It. Wow. And we'll be exploring that latest work in the moment. So I have a few warm-up questions for you. The first one is... What does it mean to be a woman, Dr. Laurie? Well, I mean, let me take a step back. Um, as, right now, I think we're in a very important time in our culture where we're really becoming much more aware of gender identity. So basically being a woman is feeling like a woman. It doesn't matter what's between your legs. I know there are people who have vaginas or vulvas, um, with the vagina is the internal part, the vulva, the external part for those of people who don't know that and who identify as a woman. There are people who have penises who identify as a woman. So it's about it's for me, when you ask that question, I'm thinking of gender identity, not what's between your legs. Oh, wow. I love that. And also now it made me curious to know what it is to feel like a woman. Well, I cannot, I can only speak for myself. There's, you know, I can't, that's not really a question that I can answer, but I do know it's it there's so many layers to this in terms of how we're raised how we feel in our bodies uh you know and there's people who are have the privilege of being born in a female body and saying i feel like a woman and i'm one of those people i mean my what's between my leg matches how i feel i feel feminine i feel identified with the term woman. There's people I know who have penises who feel incongruent with their bodies and they feel emotionally, you know, spiritually more like a woman. But I mean, there's so many pieces of it that I don't think that I could answer that question for all women. I think it's very individual and there's also different aspects. So I might feel like a woman, like in terms of my body, but I might have what are traditional more um, ways of interacting with the world that we typically break into the gender dichotomy, you know, you know, in terms of um, being a very assertive with my communication. So there isn't one way to be a woman at all. And I think that's very, very important to know. Yeah. Yes, um, I love your answer. And uh, so relating to being a female in a human body, I have those two more questions. What do you love most about being a woman? Huh, well, that is a good question. Uh, what do I love most about being a woman? I love everything about being a woman. Actually, I 
I, I mean, I certainly don't like, I will say what I don't like and then what I do like, but I don't like that we still, there is still sexism and, um, a lack of privileging of the female experience in many ways, especially in the sexual realm. But I love, um, I love my friends. I love the way we talk and relate to each other in what would be typically a female way. Um, I love having sex as a woman. Um, I love the power of my clitoris. Um, I love, um, being a mother and that, um, I very identified. I have two adult daughters I've raised. Um, I love the mother daughter bond. I have a sister I'm close with. I love the sister bond. Um, so I probably the part I like the most are the relational aspects that are core to my identity as a woman. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I guess you answered my next question about what is the most challenging aspect about being a woman? Uh, do you want to expand a bit more on that? Well, I think that has for me personally, it's changed over the years. Um, And I think, uh, but every challenge for me has, I think, been related to deeply ingrained and systemic uh, sexism in our culture. Um, when I was first starting my career, um, I was one of only like two women um, at the university department where I was at. And that came with some sexism. When I decided, when I had a, a child, um, when a couple of my colleagues said that meant I was less committed to my career. So we're, that was like, you know, 30 years ago. Hopefully things have changed. Um, but I think, and then um, there was a lot of challenges when I was raising my children Because even though I identified as a feminist and even though my husband identified as a feminist, um, I felt like I, we sort of fell into this thing where um, I sort of took more responsibility for the household and the child rearing, even though we were both trying to get our careers off the ground. So I think balance um, was hard. Um, so... I mean, I, I guess I would say that there's been hard parts, but the hard parts for me may be very different than the hard parts to others. But when I scratch the surface of what's hard, I think it has been all due to a lack of systems that we have in place to support women through many important life transitions and challenges um, because we are sort of expected to live our life like male light, basically. Um, and I think that that's a big problem for many women in general, in careers, in sex, you know, you name it. I agree. You said, hopefully things changed. Do you think the things are changing at this time? <laughs> I do. I do. Um, it's in some ways, in some places, things have changed. Um, you know, when I see, for example, I really, I had no support when I was trying to build my career, you know, I'm nearing retirement and was a young mother. Now, thankfully the, the young women at my work have that support. So in that way, yes, but in other ways I see us fighting the same battles, like, 
around rape, sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual coercion that we were fighting, you know, 30 years ago when I was starting my career. Yeah. Wow. That made me think about another question that's not here. Uh, how do you think we women can support one another in paving these chains? I think it's really important to speak your truth. And so many times we think, I mean, from when, it, you know, my area is sex. And so that's an example I can use. I have so many women come to me and say, I think I'm not normal. I think I'm something's wrong with me because of this, that or the other. And often it's like, no, this is the same thing I hear from so many other women or here's the, um, here's the statistics basically. So I think that we need to talk to each other to break the silence um, because there is power in getting support and there is power in sharing our experiences with one another. Yes, 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 a thousand times <laughs> for the rest of the interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so my next warm-up question, it relates directly to your work. What is another word for orgasm and what is orgasm? Okay, so there's other, I don't know, I mean, only the slang language words, you know, um, people talk about coming, um, but I tend to use the scientific word, orgasm. And an orgasm, I mean, biologically, what it is, is um, when, and it's the same for people with penises as people with vulvas, basically what happens is during sexual arousal and excitement, we have these special types of capillaries in our genitals where the blood, when you're excited, the blood flows in, but not out. When you're not excited, it goes both ways. That's what's responsible for erections in penises, but vulvas have their own erections too. It's the same thing. And an orgasm is when a series of muscular contractions push that blood out. So that's what the it is biologically, but in terms of what it feels like, people will say it is like this great release and it's incredibly pleasurable. Um, and there, interestingly, there was a study where Both women and men were asked to write descriptions of the orgasm, their orgasm. And after taking out any hints about like ejaculation or whatever that might identify that person as um, a man, um, sex therapists, educators, gynecologists, physicians couldn't tell the difference between male and female orgasms. So they're, it's the same in both. It's a, it's due to the you know, the blood being released, and it's a very pleasurable feeling. Yeah, you're saying these things, and I was trying to think about a word to describe, and uh, the word was energy. It feels like highly energetic. Yeah, and some, several people have spoken about sort of even orgasm having mystical or spiritual qualities, and it's a release of powerful energy. I've, I have heard people describe it that way before. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the purpose of the human experience? The purpose of the human experience in general, or are we talking about orgasm? <laughs> in general. In um, general. <laughs> wow, you're asking very big questions that you're calling warm-up <laughs> questions. Um, th these are the kind right. of things, right? Psychologists, philosophers <laughs> have been 
debating for <laughs> centuries. Um, but if I was going to sum up the human experience, I think it is both a quest for connection and a quest for meaning for many people. Yeah, beautifully answered. Yes, I agree. And my next one is about freedom. What is the meaning of freedom to you, Dr. Laurie? What is to be free? Well, I'm very privileged because I have led a life of freedom. I, you know, have ancestors who have not led a life of freedom. So, and especially in our, you know, current environment, I mean, I think freedom is, you know, to, to live your life without being abused, without being discriminated against, like that's like the, you know, the, without being, you know, harassed. I mean, that's like the basic, but then we can, once we get that in place, you know, sometimes it's the freedom to live in your own skin, be who you are, be, you know, speak your truth. I mean, I think it's, there's sort of a hierarchy of freedom and how many freedoms you have probably depends on your how privileged you are in our culture or not. Wonderful. So at this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? The world's greatest need uh, for all people to be free, for all people to um, have basic needs met food, clothing, shelter, to not be um, physically, sexually, emotionally assaulted. I mean, we have so much trauma going on in the world. Um, so I don't, I don't know how you'd ever solve that problem. But to me, to end, to end the horrors that we humans inflict upon one another in the name of religion or culture or countries, um, but to actually find some way for peace, peace and security for all. Yeah, what a beautiful answer too. That might begin with um, inner peace, right? That might be the first step to get out of peace. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. I mean, inner peace, you can't have inner peace, right? If you're being traumatized. Um, so inner peace, I mean, I'm privileged enough to seek inner peace. I meditate every day. I do yoga every day. I mean, I work actively on being peaceful, but I'm not sure I could say that all change starts with inner peace for people who are, you know, in, you know, have been held in, you know, prisons or camps or, you know, you know, harmed. I don't know that inner peace honestly is the answer. I think ending violence and discrimination is the answer. Yeah. Perhaps the way I understand inner peace being the answer is that idea of surrender, of acceptance of what is, what's happening. So creating this inner power that nothing really can touch you. Even though the body suffering, people are being ignorant, violence, the whole craziness happening, we still can hold that space within. I do believe that we have the power to change our own minds, you know. Yeah. And I mean, it, it sort of reminds me of some of the writings of people like um, Viktor Frankl, who was in a concentration camp, right? I mean, experiencing 
you know, absolute horror, but found, you know, a, a depth of love and humanity and peace in his heart, despite that. Right. Yes. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> I have two more questions for you. The warm up questions. Um, love. What is love to you, Dr. Laurie? Uh, it's, it's, you know, scientists have been trying to study that for years, you know, looking at like the biochemistry involved, et cetera, et cetera. To me, it is just this warm, fuzzy, I know it when I feel it. It's this incredible, open-hearted, warm, connected, caring feeling for another human being. And it comes in forms. The way I love my daughters is different than the way I love my father or my uh, sister or my husband. But I sure know it when I feel it. Yes. And my last question is, um, what, where, and who is God to you? Well, you might not like my answer um, because I don't identify as believing in a big power. Um, but I think God is um, found in the way we treat other people. I mean, God is love. God is um, all, all around us and between us. I love your answer. And yeah, my, this is my idea of what whatever God is. Yeah, it's unconditional love. Right? So let's talk about your work. And my first question had to be this one. How did you become a writer? Well, I have always loved to write. Um, and then I spent many years as an academic psychologist writing research articles, publishing research articles in scientific journals. Um, and so sort of got that skill down. And then I reached a point in my career that I said, you know, I really like to write, but I don't like writing for this very narrow audience of scientists that, that are going to read this and it's not going to go anywhere. And so then I started trying to read up about writing, go to workshops, talk to people who were writing more for the public. And I started just trying my hand on it myself and found that I absolutely love the process of writing. I mean, it can be very frustrating. I mean, I was saying to my husband last night, like I can spend an hour on a sentence to get it just right. Um, or an hour finding the right word. Um, so it can be very frustrating, but it is an, I think it's a really important process of communicating with other people. Yes. Yeah. Um, what was the inspiration of writing your book, Becoming Cliterate? Okay. Becoming Cliterate, and it's a play on words. It's a play on, you know, literate and the clitoris. Um, and um, my inspiration was my students. As I mentioned in the beginning, I teach the psychology of human sexuality to hundreds of students a year. And through teaching that class, I became aware of what I call in the book, the orgasm gap, which is the fact that when cisgender men and women get it on, the women are having way fewer orgasms than the, women, the men are. Um, and that I saw how painful that was for my students. And I started teaching about things related to the orgasm gap. And I would get um, 
notes from my students saying, you know, thanks to your class, I'm orgasmic, or thanks to your class, my girlfriend's orgasmic. And I thought I have to get this knowledge out there more broadly than just the people in my classroom. And so my students inspired me. Yeah. And what was the intention, Dr. Laurie? The intention was to combine cultural analysis and self-help to close the orgasm gap in our culture and empower women to orgasm. Wow. And I have some more technical questions here for you. But before that, I have to ask you another question. Uh, Why did you choose to become a psychologist? Uh, I don't know because it's been so long, but I always, even as a child, wanted to be a psychologist. I mean, it was I was just one of those people that knew what they wanted from a very young age. Um, I think I've always found people and fascinating and understanding people fascinating and helping people um, very meaningful. Um, and it was just uh, sort of a natural career path for me. Yeah, yes. A lot of times these uh, careers, they choose us, right? Whatever we do, we're chosen by them. So um, talk to me about the misconceptions in our society about women and their sexuality. Well, I think there are so many that it's hard to break them down. But the one that I address in my second book, Becoming Cliterate, is this long-standing idea that's just, it's been around for so long, it's really time to like get rid of it. The idea that women should orgasm the same way men do through penetration, when in fact only about four to 18% of women orgasm from penetration alone without clitoral stimulation. So that's one of the biggest one. And um, I agree. So one of the things that I wrote here, the uh, performing oral sex on a woman, it's considered a foreplay and not the main act. Well, I think it's that that cultural privileging of the male experience. And it goes, what you're talking about is we use the word sex and intercourse as if they were one and the same. So we consider the most important act intercourse you know, and it goes beyond just that it's about conception. It's because it's the way men most reliably orgasm. And I'm not blaming men, I'm blaming culture. And then we then relegate everything beforehand to quote foreplay, just a lead up to the main event. When in fact, those acts that are often called foreplay are the ones that lead most women to orgasm. I often joke and say if we were privileging the female experience, um, we would say we would call foreplay sex and intercourse postplay. Um, but I'm not suggesting we do either. I'm suggesting that we equally value both women and men's most reliable route to orgasm. And how do we learn? to uh, to communicate with our partners in such a way that this can be understood. Basically, we have to start thinking that we deserve this, that it's important. And it starts in our mind that we are equally entitled to pleasure and that there's nothing wrong with our route to pleasure. 
And then in my book, I have a whole chapter on communication and sexual communication is simply a subset of good communication and owning it, saying to your partner, you know, something like, I really love you. I really love our sex life. And I'd like to be, um, have more focus on my clitoris. I'd like to have more oral sex. I'd like to bring my vibrator to bed with me. However you want to say it, but owning it and asserting clearly what you want when you're not in the bedroom. And then during a sexual encounter, you can use your words. You can say more here, less there, or you can talk with your hands, put your hand on top of your partner, show them what you want to do. There are many, many ways to communicate sexually. Wow. That sounds to me like a process of um, making that clear, as you said, that we deserve pleasure too. And, um, and also shame, shame connected to religious beliefs. But I think even outside of religious beliefs, they're just those false beliefs or beliefs that we have been holding for so long. Yeah, I'm just wondering how do we get past the shame even to start communicating clearly? Well, I think educating oneself, like there's not power in knowledge. Like, I mean, so much shame comes from you know, being raised say, that something is wrong or bad and, you know, you, and, and it takes effort. It takes time to educate yourself and find out that, no, what you want is just, an, you know, what other people want often and, you know, part of the human experience. So, I mean, there's no one real answer, right? I can't say, well, take this pill and you will no <laughs> right. longer feel shame. It takes work. It takes self-talk. It, you know, sometimes it takes mm. talking to friends or a therapist who will help you let go of shame, especially sexual shame. Yeah, yes. Uh, it sounds to me like everything else, it starts with the mind, just re-educating, reprogramming the mind itself. So in what are some of the ways that we can learn to explore and discover and enjoy our bodies more? Well, I think, again, centuries of misunderstandings and myths about what you're about self-pleasure, about masturbation, so many religions saying that it's wrong. And, and in fact, um, self-pleasure masturbation is a cornerstone of sex therapy for almost all sexual concerns. Um, and so really, you know, and there's some very sex positive religious writings. Um, so really exploring your own body, taking the time to masturbate. It is when I see clients who've not orgasmed before, that is the first thing I do is send them home to learn their anatomy, look at their anatomy and then to touch themselves, to figure out what they want. So it's not just the mind. It starts with the mind uh, changing the, uh, the beliefs and then uh, exploration of our own bodies. That sounds like a lot of work, <laughs> which everything that's worthwhile in life, it is lots of work. <laughs> uh, true. <laughs> yes. Right. But it's not. Once you get it's it's also fun work. I always, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's mm. pleasurable work. Once you get past the shame, you know, masturbation, people do it because it feels good and it's fun and it relieves stress and there's many health benefits to it as well. 
True, Dr. Laurie. And I noticed that it's so much easier for men to do that, to please themselves. Well, they're not raised with as much cultural stigma (laughs) around it. Yeah, that's the reason. And is your book also for men? Could they learn from? Yeah. In fact, there's a chapter at the end of my book that's a summary of the whole book written for men. It's titled, You Don't Have to Have a Clitoris to be Clitorate. And in fact, um, there was a research study done and it found that indeed women who read the book become more orgasmic, more uh, less sexual pain, more aroused, more sexually assertive. And men who read the book gain a better knowledge of women's anatomy. They let go of damaging myths around sexuality and they become better sexual communicators. Yeah. Okay. So this is a, that's great that you have that section there, a summary for men. That's great to know. Um, And I have another question here about mindfulness. How is mindfulness connected to orgasm? Well, I, in my book, I say that mindfulness is sex's best friend. So as you know, mindfulness is sort of being in the present moment, not, you know, and noticing when your mind wanders and pulling it back. And that's essential to orgasm because you can't have an orgasm when you're thinking, am I doing this right? Is it taking too long? What does he or she think of me? Um, orgasm requires letting go of your thoughts, not thinking at all. Or And um, interesting research shows that the brain state that we get in deep mindfulness meditation is the same brain state that we achieve right prior to orgasm. So you can really see how they're connected in that way because it's a state of total and complete present focus. Mm, I love that idea, yeah. So meditation is connected to mindfulness. In order to practice mindfulness, we need to meditate. Yes, or do yoga, both. Yeah, yoga. Yoga Yoga is a great way to learn to be in your body and to be mindful. And research also shows that yoga can help enhance orgasm and sexual satisfaction. And I believe that's because of the mindfulness piece that you learn, the body awareness, the present focus piece you learn in yoga. That's a wonderful advice, yeah. Um, Are there other kinds of methods that we can use to become more mindful besides yoga? Yoga, I would say meditation, but also I advise people just practice it in your daily life. Any moment can be a mindful one when you're brushing your teeth. Really focus on the sensations of the toothpaste when you're washing your hands. And the practice isn't totally always being in that mindful space. The the practice is also noticing when your mind wanders and being able to bring it back to your current sensations to your body sensations. Yes, I love these kinds of practices, self-awareness, self-knowledge. They are wonderful and so effective. So I have a few more questions for you. I call them final questions. But before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? All right. Well, it's a little graphic, but I think it gets the point across. Okay. Mm. You feel so good. Does that feel good, baby? No, not really, you think. Oh, yeah, you reply. You roll your eyes because thankfully, in doggy style, he can't see your face. You are so ready for it to be over. 
He grunts enthusiastically, breathing hard. You sense he's about to come, so you start breathing hard and moaning too. Yes, harder, deeper, you scream in order to hurry him to climax. He finally finishes and asks, did you come too? Yes, it was amazing, you lie. Can you relate? Sadly, most women can. Here's the deal. There's a huge pleasure gap between women and men. Men are having way more orgasms than women are. And then it goes on about why this is true. Uh, yeah, what can I say? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Let me not say anything. Um, so I have a few more questions and um, let me ask you this one. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? For me, um, you know, in the age of coronavirus right now, mm-hmm. I have a whole different level of success. I've been trying to tell myself that any day I get exercise and don't get sick is a good day. Um, but in a more global way, I think for me, success is doing things that make a difference in other people's lives that help them, help them become more comfortable in their own skin, help them become more knowledgeable about sex, help them become more orgasmic. Wow. Yes. What is your idea of strength? What is to be strong? Um to be able to persevere, I think, through emotional and physical sometimes um, difficulties. But it, it's not about lifting weights. It's about being persistent, being able to stay strong despite the challenges. Mm, I love that. Yes. Resilient, right? Do you believe in unconditional self-love? Um. I believe it's a goal to strive for, but I would say I would more say I believe in self-acceptance and trying to, um, you know, accept oneself. But that doesn't mean to say, oh, I have this flaw, I'm not going to work on it. But accepting who you are in all of your full humanness and including working on things. that you um, want to change. Right. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. And I agree. Two more questions. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? Mm, What a thought-provoking question. Um, No, I don't think so, because I try to live every day in that space. I try to tell the people I love, I love them. I try to treat people kindly. I try to do things to help people. Um, I try to take care of myself, my body, my mind. So I think I'm living my life honestly in a way that is, if I died tomorrow, I would be very sad to leave the people I love, but I don't think I'd be living my life differently. Maybe I'd have more cinnamon rolls. I do refrain <laughs> from eating cinnamon rolls. They're my favorite food, but I think I'd probably mm-hmm. eat a, a bunch of cinnamon rolls and chocolate sundaes and those things because I do kind of restrain from eating these things that are not that are delicious but not that great for my body. But right. um, you know, and I don't just mean weight. I mean like you know, you know, right. processed foods, all that. I'd probably just eat more junk food. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's so cute. <laughs> I I always laugh when I hear this. Yeah, from some women, especially chocolate. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> uh, that's cute. <laughs> My last question is: What are three things about life you know for sure as of now? Hmm. I know that nothing is permanent in sort of a Buddhist tradition. Impermanence is the most, um, and I've honestly, I've lost a few very uh, close people very suddenly through death in the last couple of years. And it's really taught me about impermanence. Um, nothing is permanent. And that means neither the good nor the bad. When I was growing up, my grandmother used to say, this too shall pass when something was bad. But now I realize this too shall pass is includes the good too. Nothing is permanent. Um, I know that um, connection is essential for human health and well-being and that um, connection comes through. The third one is through allowing yourself to be vulnerable, sharing your true self with people who you can trust. Um, so I guess those are the things I'd say. Impermanence, connection, and vulnerability. Uh, I love them all, and I love your wisdom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your presence, your knowledge, your intention to help humans help us. Thank you for being fun, too. <laughs> fun to talk to. <laughs> I've been laughing throughout the conversation <laughs> with a smile on my face. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. It's great. And I have one more question for you, but this is a technical one. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Um, you can find everything on my website, www. DrLaurieMintz.com, D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E-M-I-N-T-Z.com. It has a link to my, to buy both my books on Amazon, which you could also just go directly to Amazon and do. It has a link to my TED Talk, to speeches I'm giving or have given, uh, quotes in the media, etc. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Dr. Laurie, and we'll talk soon. Thank you for having me on. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Lori Mintz, please visit her website, drlorimintz.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.